Good evening. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Bread and Puppet Theater. I did not like what I saw in the American theater. It was too commercial. It was too much about selling some commodity, some perfection. And when I saw Bread and Puppet, it was not about that at all. I felt that I saw something that was as old as the stones and was not perfect and was not trying to sell itself and not trying to make you envious of it. And I felt that I had found what I had been looking for in the theater all of my life. In New York City in the early 1960s, a new theater was born, the Bread and Puppet Theater, named for the coarse, flavorful sourdough bread that was given out at its performances and for the grave, evocative puppet figures that were the theater's main performers. The theater was created by Peter Schumann, a German-born dancer, musician, and sculptor who found in puppet theater a way of blending all these arts into a form uniquely his own. Schumann's art is deeply political, but he's also won artistic acclaim for the sculptural genius of his puppets and for the solemn theatrical ceremonies that he's created with them. In France, in 1968, his work was so much à la mode that students pounded in the doors of sold-out theaters until they were allowed in. But despite this glowing artistic reputation, Schumann has always stayed close to puppetry's popular roots. He's kept his theater poor, anarchic, and non-commercial, and he's poured his talents into the restoration of popular forms like pageants, parades, and passion plays. In the 1970s, the Bread and Puppet Company drew tens of thousands of spectators to a huge annual summer pageant called the Domestic Resurrection Circus. They've toured throughout the world, often on a shoestring, and wherever they've gone, they've planted a vision of puppetry as the theater for our time. Cheap, accessible, deprofessionalized, and able to give voice to all that has been hurt and forgotten in the onrush of civilization. Tonight on Ideas, David Cayley begins a four-hour series about Peter Schumann's Bread and Puppet Theater. Pictures of some of the puppets are available at our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. The series is called Puppet Uprising, and in this opening program, David Cayley introduces the theater and tells Peter Schumann's story up to the time of the theater's first successes in New York. Puppet Uprising, Part 1. One of the largest anti-war movements in United States history continued today with demonstrations in a score of cities and more planned for up to 100 other centers. In New York, the demonstration centered around the Armed Forces Induction Center and a similar protest I saw them march down Fifth Avenue with a peace demonstration, and to see these puppets on Fifth Avenue, giant airplane that had a dragon's mouth going over the top of these huge Vietnamese women who were blindfolded with their hands tied together in a long chain line. And when the airplane passed over them with these drum, sharp drum beats, they went down to the ground and then slowly got back up and moved forward past the airplane so that the 
sequence was repeated as a walking parade. And it was so strong, such a moral call, and aesthetically so beautiful. It was beyond what we had seen on the streets for protest. And I knew I wanted to work with them immediately. The streets of New York were where a lot of people first saw the Bread and Puppet Theater. Amy Trumpeter went on, as she wished, to become a member of the theater, and today directs her own Blackbird Theater, as well as teaching at Barnard College. What she saw on Fifth Avenue in the spring of 1966 would not be so surprising today. Big puppets have become a staple of anti-globalization protest. But at the time, Peter Schumann was creating a new political language. He had dispensed with the pickets, chants, and shouted slogans that were the normal rhetoric of political demonstrations, and instead brought a distillation of war itself in front of people. His puppets were witnesses who could give their testimony without ever falling into banality or self-righteousness. This new rhetoric of protest was just one of Schumann's many innovations. He also reinvigorated many old forms, like religious pageantry. Omar Shapley is an actor, director, and teacher of theater. He remembers a performance at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, which was set to the music of a mass by the Renaissance composer Josquin Desprez. I still have such a a growing memory of uh, the Ave Maristella, the Mass to the Virgin, uh, Hail uh, Star of the Sea, uh, which is an extraordinary text anyway, I think. And um, what he built for that, the, the Mass didn't enter into it at all at first, a series of dangerous and destructive images done very slowly throughout the first part. And my memory is not very clear about many of these, but it ended up with things failing in many ways, many places, and a sense of despair and disorder settling on the universe that was this room that we were all in. And at that point, everything became quite dark. And then at the very back of the room, we began to hear the Josquin mass, sung, of course, a cappella. And you looked around behind and you saw a ship with colored lights along the, the uh, top of it as uh, from mast to mast and up to the prow. A fairly large ship made mostly of people moving slowly up the aisle with, this, uh, with the chorus sort of backing it up with it, coming through very slowly and throwing out lines or hands to objects that were had been cast aside and pulling them into this ship. As it came up, little by little, we saw the ship as something that brought hope and a kind of salvation to all, and order and love to all of this... Uh, this madness that had been going on in the world around it. It was certainly perhaps the most powerful single religious image of that sort that I can remember in my own past. And it was it was the sort of thing that left your mouth open. It's like lightning striking. It was, it was gorgeous in the extreme. Uh, just one wept. 
arresting images, like the gathering and enfolding ship of the Ave Maristella, are characteristic of Peter Schumann's art. His assemblies of puppets possess a mysterious and inviting depth and universality. Mark Estrin is a theater director, musician, and novelist who has been part of the Bread and Puppet Theater for more than 30 years. He remembers a sequence of shows called the Grey Lady Cantatas that were done in the 1960s and 70s. The puppets for which they were named were oversized female figures whose very simply sculpted faces expressed what the Germans call Weltschmerz, world sadness, the tears of things. The Grey Ladies weren't um, this or that person. They weren't even Vietnamese people who were being bombed or whatever. They were the people who looked like and walked like gray ladies in the world and whoever that is. And they weren't, you couldn't really, they didn't belong anywhere. They belonged everywhere, including inside every, in the gray lady part of every person, uh, even if they're, George Bush has a gray lady in him. And to recognize this figure, what your gray lady is and how your gray lady would move even if it were inside of you as it moves through the interior of your body. That's who they were. They're very, very big and important universal figures. One of the things that happened to me that was important early on in my coming to Bread and Puppet happened around a gray lady. There was a scene where the gray lady, the entire scene was the gray lady crawling across probably a 12-foot proscenium stage, one of these real tiny claustrophobic stages. And she would start the scene, the curtain would be drawn back, and she would be on stage right, and 10 minutes later she'd be on stage left. And I'm sitting in the audience because I was uh, maybe a musician for this, so I wasn't in the, on the set. And I'm saying, okay, okay, I get it already. I get it. She's crawling across the stage. It's hard for her. I get it. I get it. And Peter said to me, you don't get it. Just watch it. And I realized that was you know, a crucial flaw in my operation, my psychic operation, is you know, I, would, I would get things and then I wouldn't be at present at them anymore and I wouldn't be available to them anymore because I had gotten them. You know, and Peter said, that isn't the way you, that's not what we're doing, getting things. Getting it is reductive and experiencing it is as deep as the phenomenon itself, depending on your capacity to be open and be present at it. And when you have an artist like Peter designing it, what he's doing is opening that out for you. It's like an opening that leads down into the center of the earth. Uh, these magical things that you would be able to go to the underworld through this cave, this particular cave. Well, Peter is designing doorways. And in fact, the door is big bread and puppet symbol. It was, and there was a show called The Door, and just people standing with doors uh, have occurred continually in bread and puppet. And I think Peter is, is creating doorways for people to enter. It's kind of like um, the Kafka before the law parable, where people sit outside the door, and they wait for the door to open, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and then before they die, the door closes, and the, the guard says, this door was for you, <laughs> and only for you. And, you know, Peter is helping 
people to understand that the door can be walked through because of the nature of the door that he designs. Peter's like the history of the world. You know, it's springing out of him. All of this impulse, all of this early untamed impulse in theater making and inventing that our, our little culture with its text-based theater have, we have very few examples of that. Amy Trumpeter. There are traces of it, you know, on a vase painting or in a statue in a museum or in some kind of music that you hear. You know it. You know it. And when I see Peter's puppets, I, I recognize them as if I met them in a dream. They're familiar to me. I mean, anybody who sees them would say that. These big images on the street parade, they're familiar. I know them. I know what they are. I know what they're about. Their goodness, their evilness, their, you know, the juice that's in them. It's clear, like I've met them before in that way that when you meet something in a dream, you know. You know what this is. That's what these archetypes are that we have. Amy Trumpeter calls the art of the Bread and Puppet Theater archetypal. Mark Estrin says that it opens doors into the depths of existence. Omar Shapley, that it stirs religious awe. All point to a theater of what Northrop Fry called primary concern, concern with the most basic elements of existence. The company's very name associates art with food. Its themes have been equally basic war and peace, love and death, fall and resurrection. Many of these themes are drawn from Peter Schumann's childhood, which was passed in a close family driven to the extremities of existence by war. He told me the story during a long interview, which stretched over several days in the CBC's New York studios. Schumann was born in 1934, the second youngest of five children in Silesia, near the city of Breslau, which was then part of Germany and today of Poland. His father was a schoolmaster who imparted a deep love of literature to his family. Breslau was an industrial city and a railway junction, so it was heavily bombed when war came. Schumann remembers the sky above the city, ablaze with light. We called them Christmas trees because they always happened at night and then they would throw lights like fireworks into the sky before they did their bombardments. And then the detonations and the, and the bombs. So we would all run out to admire the Christmas trees and then rush to our holes where we would, you know, we had a hole in the garden. My father had dug a deep, deep hole and big, big cover over it, like a bunker, a private little, little family bunker. And we all rushed in there and and then outweighted the bombs, and, and then you would hope they wouldn't hit you, you know. But the, the city, the town was burning pretty badly on the day when we left, so. And we heard the Russian cannons from one side of town, and we had allied attacks from the top, so. The trains were catastrophes, they were totally overloaded, and people hanging on like grapes on the outside of trains to get out of there. But You're we got out. 
the family fled ahead of the occupying Russian forces to the northern province of Germany where his parents had met and still had friends. Peter was ten. There again he witnessed aerial bombardment, this time of a German ship transporting prisoners of war. We were right on the, on the Baltic Sea, on the Bay of Lübeck, and we saw, we stood on the hill, we boys, and we saw the airplanes attacking that ship. And it was just a spectacle of seeing the airplanes coming, dropping bombs, going away, coming again, making the round, dropping bombs, flying away, and like this. We saw the whole attack. And then the following days, striped suits, corpses, would be washed on shore by the hundreds. And it was concentration camp prisoners. It was a prison ship that was bombarded by the Allies. And what did you do, you boys, when you find these? Well, when we found the bodies, the it was a big problem or? for them. Yeah, they went with their carts, they picked up the bodies, they made mass graves, and they buried them. The village where the Schumanns found refuge was organized on almost feudal lines, tenant farmers working the land with horses. The family made their bread from what they could glean from the remains of the harvest. Since there were many refugees in that village, the lines of gleaners were long. And it's, it's an unforgettable experience because we didn't have shoes either during that time. Or we had, I think, a pair of shoes to share among five kids. So you always had bloody ankles doing this because of the stubble that's left, you know, and you walk amongst the stubbles barefoot and it cuts right into the ankle. You bloody your feet as you do it. But the amounts that you get in walking, and you have your little bag with you, and you fill it up, and then there's a basket or a larger bag where you empty that into, and, and you keep walking, and it's amazing amounts. So I think we made all the bread for our family from gleaning. All the kids and my mother all working together, gleaning. With the glean grain and an old coffee grinder to make it into flour, his mother baked the family's bread, as she had always done. When we grew up, we always baked, and I happened to be the helper, my mother's helper, for baking. So I helped her with kneading already as a kid. Her hands were worn and thin from maybe too many other chores and washings and what have you, and she enjoyed very much having a kid in the family who wanted to help her bake, and that was me. And the baking was done once a week, and it was learned from a Silesian peasant woman who was my mother's child helper, maid, and it's Silesian sourdough rye bread. And she never baked any other bread other than for Easter or Christmas, white loaves, quite seldom. But her real baking, the real bread was always sourdough rye, made from a roughly ground rye flour. The bread sustained them, and after the war, the family moved to Hanover, where Peter's father became the principal of a high school. Hanover was, like Breslau, an industrial city, and it too had been heavily bombed. 
everything was destroyed. The baker across the street from us started putting bricks together and built a little hut over an old oven that was still down there in the rubble. So he cleared that out. It was a, an underground bakery, so to speak, you know. There's just a little hut going over there, and that's where we baked our breads. My, my mother always baked, and we carried the loaves to the baker, to his oven, down there, downstairs, into this underground hollow there where he had his oven. But this impression of people standing, especially women, I remember, standing in long lines in these piles of rubble, there was so much of that. Out of this rubble, would soon rise the Wirtschaftswunde, the economic miracle of post-war German reconstruction. But young Peter Schumann did not much like the glossy new facade that was being erected. After high school and a very short stay in art college, he left home, traveling with a friend to France, Sweden, and Greece. They bought a horse and cart, which they used until the horse went lame, and then an old car, which also broke down after an accident. Peter was already an artist. He painted, sculpted, and played the violin. At school, he had co-opted friends into strange experiments in theater and dance. He and his friend performed wherever they could. Eventually, he settled in Bavaria, in a village near Munich, where he established the Group for New Dance, in an attempt to realize the idea that then preoccupied him. It seemed to me it was possible to move right, to create something where movement would be like people should move. It seemed to me that the way people moved was wrong, that people were wrong because they moved wrong. Instead of walking forward, they should walk backwards. And all the mannerisms of normal life seemed to me wrong. So I thought dance would be to invent how humans should move, that that would cure the other parts of wrongness attached to the bourgeoisie, which isn't just movement. But it was a very wild idea that things could be righted by using that animal body and letting it do the correct things. And I had very clear ideas of what that correct thing was, and I even went to dance studios, and I gave classes. I was so convinced of this, that this would be the thing. And in the dance studios, I experienced the difficulty that they were already so educated in a certain type of movement that the whole struggle was to shed all the things that they had learned, to get rid of all the aesthetics and habits that were attached to their movements. So I struggled and had a hard time with them. But I did it in Sweden and in Frankfurt and in all kinds of places. I just went to ballet schools and said, I, I show you how to move. And often enough they said, thank you very much. <laughs> no. <laughs> and often enough I was persuasive enough to make my way into that. It was ridiculous, naturally, but I was very convinced of the rightness of it. Schumann's vision of moving in the right way can be seen, in retrospect, as the seed of the future bread-and-puppet theater, a theater without aesthetic pretension, 
unburdened by the history of theater and able to perform its gestures in precise attunement with the present moment. But in Germany, in the late 1950s, only his deep conviction sustained him. He was able to cobble a group together, and even to mount a tour, but there were constant defections, and Schumann was never really able to convey the urgency of his vision to his collaborators. Then came a visit to the United States. In Munich, Peter had met and married an American, Elke Lee Scott, a student at Bryn Mawr College spending a year abroad. And in the spring of 1961, with two young children, they decided to visit her parents in suburban Connecticut, not far from New York City. There, Peter Schumann would find the milieu in which his talents could thrive. On Ideas Tonight, you're listening to Puppet Uprising, a four-hour portrait by David Cayley of Peter Schumann's Bread and Puppet Theater. Photographs are available on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. New York in 1961 was in a state of cultural effervescence. Visual artists, unhappy at merely making commodities for the art market, were creating what were called happenings. John Cage was experimenting with new forms of music, as was Merce Cunningham with dance and the living theater with drama. Peter Schumann found this atmosphere more congenial than Germany's, and he and Elke decided to stay settling on the Lower East Side. At first, he pursued his interest in dance. But the following year, when Elka got a job teaching Russian at her alma mater, the Putney School in Vermont, Peter began to do puppetry with students there. He had been fascinated with puppetry in childhood and had already been making masks for dances for a number of years. Now he began to build puppets and to create shows, but according to Elke, the inspiration to begin working on the larger scale that became one of his trademarks didn't come until the next summer. In America, he went to a puppet festival in Hurleyville, New York, and came back and described to me the Sicilian marionettes, heavy wooden figures clad in armor, very simple to manipulate, one iron rod into the head, and the sword arm has a rod. And they're just kind of bounced and jostled across the stage by very strong men because their arms are outstretched for like three hours at a time, and they have to say all the lines that go with the... And what the puppets do basically is declaim speeches, and then they fight, and that fighting consists of these bodies clashing together and... Peter came back from that totally entranced to discover that puppetry wasn't just bunny rabbits or as the other things at that festival were. He said, you know, pink bunny rabbits and belly dance, your puppets. And he was totally disgusted by that. But the Sicilian marionettes showed him that puppetry could be virile, violent, <laughs> um, and also very simple. The Sicilian marionettes were operated by a Brooklyn family called the Manteos. They performed scenes from an epic called Orlando Furioso, which traces back to the Middle Ages. The puppets were in fact no larger than some that Schumann had already built, but their strength 
and the epic character of the story they enacted made them seem larger. He was inspired and now began to build puppets of every size, from tiny table puppets to giant figures that reached far beyond the human scale. This was the beginning of the bread and puppet theater. The bread in the name was the same coarse sourdough rye that his mother had made. Peter now baked an identical bread himself and offered it at each performance, a gesture of hospitality meant to indicate the kind of communal relationship the theater hoped to establish with its audiences. The puppets had the same integrity as the bread, a rough, expressive vitality that was worlds away from the winsome kermits and cookie monsters who have tended to monopolize the image of puppetry in the era of television. Many of Schumann's puppets are displayed today in the Bread and Puppet Museum, which is housed in an old barn on the farm in northeastern Vermont, where he and Elke have lived since 1975. I toured the museum recently with Peter Schumann, and he showed me some of the puppets with which they made their first shows. So these are disciples and the Jesus figure from the early crucifixion plays we did in New York City, uh, starting probably in 63 or 4. We did annual Easter stories, mostly about the war, and we used this Jesus figure a lot against the war in Vietnam. And pretty soon, early on, an airplane was the crucifix. And then the crucifixion itself happened by erecting the airplane behind the Jesus figure and climbing up there and tying him to the airplane. And then there were big court scenes that were imitation of political battles in Congress and such. And the figures of Judas and of Caiaphas and so on were always politicized figures that modern people would recognize as having to do with politics. The disciple and Jesus puppets, which towered above us in the museum, were gaunt, draped figures which had been operated by the puppeteer from the inside. The politicized passion plays in which they were used were performed at various churches in Brooklyn and Greenwich Village. Bread and Puppet also performed in its own loft on Delancey Street and rarely in theaters. Most shows were political, but there were occasional explorations of more abstract and more lyrical moods. One early example was Leaf Feeling the Moonlight, a delicately choreographed movement piece to the music of a Japanese flute with the puppets spotlit against a black backdrop. Bread and puppet shows of whatever kind often left a vivid impression on their audiences. Trudy Cohen is a puppeteer who was part of the Bread and Puppet Company for many years, and she thinks that the reason for this lies in the fact that puppets, much more than human actors, are able to concentrate emotion. To understand an emotion so well that that's all you're presenting, you know, to bring it down to its absolute basic thing so that a tear is just that tear is, for me, just incredible. And for an actor to cry, it's so complicated that to really believe in that tear is really difficult for me. I, mean, I was thinking this great moment, which is also one of the first things I saw of Bread and Puppet in a Grey Lady cantata, where the son goes off to war and the gray lady cries a, a glass 
prism just comes out of the eye of the, the face of the puppet and very, very, very slowly drops down on a string. And that, for me, it's like the essence of crying. I totally felt that. And I've seen actors on stage try to cry, or on a film, try to cry, and it's harder to believe that basic, basic sadness. Puppets, in Trudy Cohen's eyes, possess a purity and simplicity of expression that actors rarely, if ever, attain. Puppets can embody pathos or joy without the distortion that is unavoidably produced by any actor's basic self-regard. For Trudy Cohen, as for Peter Schumann, this gives puppets an advantage as theatrical performers. But it was not theater as such that interested Schumann. He didn't want to be part of what he saw as the enclosed and self-absorbed world of the arts. Artists like composer John Cage or dancer and choreographer Merce Cunningham, whom he knew, served as negative examples. However adventurous and avant-garde their technique, Schumann thought, they remained locked within their professional milieu. For me, New York... When we came here and Cunningham and Cage did their things in little clubs and the painters did their things in their little clubs and with these elitist little audiences going from one thing to another. For me, the decisive moment came when we said, we take our sculptures in the street, we show them to people, we see what they do, we talk about the fire department or the police department or the war in Vietnam later on. And it has to be done for that moment in the street and for the pedestrians who happen to be there. That, for me, was what was to be learned from New York, and especially in that Lower East Side slum. That seemed to be what was needed, not to enter the art scene. In the streets of New York, Schumann put on puppet shows and also adapted various other traditions of popular performance to new circumstances. One such variation on tradition was a new way of telling stories with pictures that he called cranky movies. It's a scroll of paper. You paint on it and you scroll it. You put it into a box and you put a crank on it. Can you imagine? And then the paper flows by. So you should call it a movie. It's a movie. The picture moves. And I thought of it that way, as a counter-proposal to the existing movie culture. So just put it on a garbage can outside. People don't have to pay. And you tell what's needed. You, you don't talk about people kissing each other, going into the bedroom, or or having problems, or, or this kind of bullshit. But you, you show them about the rats and the fire department and the whole business of what's going on in the street. And you put it on that thing and you show it to people. So it was a serious proposal to replace the movies with these movies. And also it didn't cost any money to make them because the paper scroll was outside the newspaper offices for free. It's from paper that they toss out. Another form of popular street theater that Bread and Puppet practiced was the parade. When mass opposition began to be expressed to the war in Vietnam in the mid-60s, Schumann's troupe added a poignant eloquence to the peace parades. George Bartaniev, a New York actor who later worked with the theater, remembers a parade performance similar to the one described by Amy Trumpeter 
at the beginning of tonight's program. What he had was about 20 women dressed in very simple robes, and on their heads were masks that were pretty much life-size, but it was the whole head. And what's so extraordinary about Peter's masks, unlike any other puppet theater that I have ever seen, now, of course, there are many imitators, but at that time, there was no precedent for what he did. The masks were so simple and yet so deeply and profoundly human that you believed that they were indeed people. And these figures were walking very slowly to the sound of a drum in the parade. And then they would stop, and then the drum would suddenly increase, and over their heads would come these planes that were on long, long, long poles, jets, up about 20, it seemed 20 feet up in the air, maybe it was less, but they would come, the planes would come over them, and then the women would drop when the planes were overhead, the women would, would just drop like that, and then they would stop, and then the, they would get up, and then they would walk again, and then the planes would again come from the distance over them, and then they would again drop. It was such a simple thing, that, and so powerful. I mean, I just thought this was sheer, sheer genius. Schumann's genius was also appreciated by novelist Grace Paley, a longtime friend of Bread and Puppet, who was then an organizer at the Greenwich Village Peace Center. She remembers how much the theater contributed to the emerging peace movement. One of the things they brought was beauty, which is missing to this day since then without him, and truth, and uh, unending labor. I mean, the hardness and heaviness of the work they all did to make the meaning of the parade shine, really, was, it was just endless and hard. And people became very dependent on them. That was another thing. Dependent? Yeah. I mean, the, the parade, the, whoever was the parade committee, everybody became totally dependent on that Bread and Puppet would certainly show up and certainly do this and certainly do that. I mean, his figures of Vietnamese uh, women, they were extremely effective. I mean, people were pretty amazed. These white masks of Vietnamese women that amazed people in the street also became part of an indoor performance, which gave the theater its first recognized theatrical success in 1966. The show was called Fire. Its occasion was the death by fire of three Americans who had immolated themselves in protest against the war in Vietnam and in tribute to the Buddhist monks who had done the same in Saigon. Actor Margot Lee Sherman performed in Fire many times. Here, she describes the final scene in which a masked woman in white remains alone on the stage. At the very end, the person doing this part has in her hand a roll of red uh, electrical tape and slowly keeping it in her hand unwinds it this way. And if you unwind this kind of tape, which I think is cloth-based, it makes a ripping sound, so it sounds like fire, flames, and runs various pieces along her body so that there are strips 
flames coming up from the feet, up the legs, the arms, across the face, the eyes. And then the person slowly, it's very hard for me to talk about it without entering into it, and the person slowly, slowly crumbles down. We were working with a lot of distortions. We were working with doing things very slowly, and it's very hard to put this into words, but it's not the kind of work that you could do without wearing masks, because a mask protects, it conceals, it transforms, and it allows a person to get into a place that's very deep, that people can't usually enter as long as they know that they're being seen. But if you can't be seen, if no one can judge you, if, if there are no prying eyes of the audience trying to get at you or get something from you, then you can enter a very, very, very deep world. In a review of Fire, writer George Dennison described the play as a kind of prayer. Fire, he said, is not a protest play, but rather a response to the horrors of Vietnam that allows its audience also to respond. It is a service for the dead. This comes close, I think, to Schumann's intention. He is trying to respond to his time, to make ceremonies adequate to the moment, to allow people to integrate what is going on. Sometimes information is so overwhelming and you want to bring it across that you try to find language and puppetry that is really the best attempt to do that job. I remember the piece, a piece that we played a lot in the war years. A man says goodbye to his mother, a tiny little 10-minute playlet with just a couple of masks in it. And we played it so much. And in its origin, all it was was a group of Spanish Harlem women talking, asking me, we have a demonstration, can you bring a piece? And the situation is the Puerto Rican boys were the ones who died in the Vietnam War, right away, in great numbers. And all of a sudden, the mothers in the neighborhood all got these letters, we regret to inform you. And the women told me that. And then I made up that sketch on the basis of that we regret to inform you letter. And it became sort of our anti-war standard piece. But it needed to be thought of as the gift for these women to say just the right thing to the American public, you see. So I didn't write it with anything else in my head. I only wanted to say exactly the right thing what these mothers, I thought, should say to the American public and to the, to the political system. Bread and Puppet is called a theater, but it is a theater of a most unusual kind. Peter Schumann is an artist, not a dramatist, and his puppets are not created as characters in stories. The puppets come first, each with its own inspiration, and then the show. Texts can be quite rudimentary. 
and what is shown often obeys a visual rather than a narrative logic. The visual element as a separate element with its own rights as part of the theater production was on my mind from the beginning. I never thought of having puppetry be used for something or music be used. I always meant that music should be music and sculpture should be sculpture and that you have to allow these great areas of our brain, like music, to be totally themselves, to work undegradedly, to work not for purposes, but to work in their own spirit. So when these things come together, you don't know what the final result is. When you toss a piece of music and a piece of sculpture and put them in the same space, you don't know what the result is in there, in your brain that's sitting out there. That's the risk and the productiveness of what you do, that it isn't finished, it isn't there. You don't compose what's in the brain. The brain composes that. You just give these the biggest chunks of food, and the brain does the job of making it into digestible something. The show, for Schumann, is like the bread, digestible something. The audience is the final composer, not him. He doesn't want to manipulate audiences, though he often has something that he urgently wants to say. His idea is that he and his performers should try to do things correctly, to move in the right way, rather than strive for effect. Each puppet has to be allowed to disclose its proper way of moving and not simply be used in some precast role. Often, Schumann's productions move quite slowly. Sometimes their meanings remain obscure. He gives no evidence of caring. He's not interested in what he calls culture-mongering or elegance production. He's looking for gestures of a revelatory truthfulness, and this often involves an extreme simplification of things. You make a person with one arm into the arm dancer, and you make a person who is hard of hearing into the chief listener. This is important to press the extremes out of things. It's the same attitude that Indian sages have devised for a certain state in their life when they make themselves blind because they cannot bear the grandeur any longer of what the eye gets to see because it's much, much, much that the eye gets to see and it cannot take it in. So only when you are blind can you see sufficiently small amounts to be able to deal with them. And that's, to me, a very understandable thought. So reality has to be reduced and intensified. And art is such a reduction, exactly. It's as if you take all the traffic noises and all the muzaks of New York City, and that's your material. And out of that, you select a few notes. And with those, by selecting these few, you make it possible to bear the rest of all of this. With these few notes, drawn out and intensified, Peter Schumann produced theater pieces of striking originality. But he never became part of New York's theatrical subculture, and his work has not been widely recognized in North America, though it has been widely copied. 
Omar Shapley taught theater at New York University when Bread and Puppet was starting out. He thinks that one of the reasons for this neglect is that Schumann was often more interested in working out moral and political problems than he was in positioning himself as a theatrical stylist. Most experimental theater is based on a fixed aesthetic of some sort. You know, this, this is what we do, a way of, uh, of solving problems, a way of approaching the problem, a way of doing all this. Um, Peter has, I'm sure, such ways also, but he also has, is far more likely to ignore them totally. That is to, to take a, a condition in which you can't judge this on the basis of my work, because you don't know what my work is, nor do I this moment. That's why, I mean, if somebody comes up and saying, that was a little slow, Peter, couldn't you get it going? It doesn't mean much to him. It would mean very much to somebody from any number of, of very avant-garde uh, theater groups who were told the same thing. They would say, now, how do we close that up? How do we do all this? But Peter is just, I'm still working, we're, we're working this out. And maybe we'll never work it out, but it is what it is. Come and join us as we work it out. Peter Schumann wanted to give his audiences something digestible, something they could complete, rather than showing them a finished, self-contained product. This emphasis on working things out made the Bread and Puppet Theatre hard for critics to classify. Omar Shapley thinks, nonetheless, that Schumann has worked on an historical scale that goes far beyond most contemporary theatre. I think that Peter's work is both extremely modern and extremely ancient. It draws its roots from the earliest theater, and one of its strengths is that when you see a work of Peter Schumann, there is an uneasy sense that you're watching something in which time plays a very odd role. That is, you're watching something that evokes a very far past the earliest move toward what we call theater, the whole ritual function of the mask and the motion in common of a group of people together, the kind of choric reality. At the same time, you're watching something that is breaking rules all the time, breaking new rules, the more recent rules all the time, and, and going into totally new ways of discovering and viewing things. That, what I've just said to you now, is in itself a reason for viewing this as a phenomenon of major theatrical importance. The fact that that has very little directly to do with off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, or Broadway, the only categories of theater basically recognized by the major critics, at least in, in uh, New York, uh, and probably in, in one way or another in most places, should not cut it out of the big discussion or the big comprehension of what we have here. I think uh, Peter is large. <laughs> Peter's work is large. And to me, there's something wrong with you if seeing his work, you do not come away with that feeling that there's something very important going on, something very large. A few years ago, there was some kind of mask exhibit at uh, Lincoln Center Library with a whole bunch of different mask makers represented, and I 
went to see it and I see a beautiful mask here and I see a pretty mask there and I see a fancy mask here, there, and all over. Just as I'm leaving, in the corner I see a mask which looks like a soul, a naked soul. And who made it? That was Margot Lee Sherman with the final unspoken word of tonight's program. I'll continue in the next program of the series with an account of Bread and Puppet's wild success in Europe at the end of the 60s, the story of the puppet pageant that attracted tens of thousands of spectators to a tiny village in northern Vermont during the 1980s and 90s, and more on Peter Schumann's unique style of theater making. On Ideas, you've listened to part one of Puppet Uprising, Peter Schumann's Bread and Puppet Theater. Photographs of the theater's work are available at www.cbc.ca slash ideas. The series continues tomorrow night. Tonight's program was written, presented, and produced by David Cayley, with the assistance of Susan Mahoney and Dave Field. The associate producer and webmaster was Liz Nage. You can order a printed transcript of this series for $22 and a set of audio cassettes or CDs for $32. Write to us at Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Or call 416-205-7367 and order by credit card. Please allow four to six weeks for delivery. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. Coming up on CBC Radio 1, the hourly news, followed by the Arts Today and Between the Covers.